You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to shows. And thanks for helping us spread the word. This is a conversation I had with Thomas Constam, author of a new novel called Lake City, about a down-on-his-luck guy in the part of Seattle you normally don't envision, see, or hear much about. I lived in Seattle for a while and have a strong fascination and interest with the Pacific Northwest. I'm one of the few people that actually like that kind of weather and vibe. So I was excited to be able to sit down and talk with Thomas, who's not only a native of Seattle, but also one of my favorite kinds of people, a writer. Lake City is his debut novel, and it's an ambitious and confident read. That's all I got, so here it is, my conversation with Thomas Constam. So Thomas, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Surface level, this is a story about two sides of Seattle. What was the intention? Good question. Um, So yeah, it's about class and it's about ambition. Um, Ambition of the individual, of the protagonist, Lane, and the costs of ambition to him as he tries to improve his life. Um, but I think it's also about ambition of the city in general and how, yeah, and and the cost of ambition to the city as we, as we move forward and change what is lost. Uh, we see with, we see with Lane, um, he's involved in essentially, he's like this ambitious loser who is contracted by a wealthy adoptive couple to seduce and sabotage this um, troubled birth mom from his neighborhood, right? So he's trying to gain back this, you know, his Trustafarian wife and his life in Manhattan that he believes he so richly deserves. And yeah, and so he's caught between two worlds, two classes, two families. And um, I think, you know, that's uh, in Seattle. I I set out to, I wanted to write like the great Seattle novel. I wanted to write something about my own experience growing up there. But I think that, uh, you know, as we move forward and change and when what that means to class and what it means pushing out a lot of the communities that used to live there too, that's one of the big stories of our time, Um, not just in Seattle, but in any other rapidly gentrifying major American city. A lot of people know Seattle because of all the tech. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually expected this mm-hmm. to be that. And mm-hmm. that I was pleasantly surprised. So it's, it was interesting. Um, it's almost a low-hanging fruit to write a book about Seattle and talk about the current well, it's, Seattle. Yeah, it's, I mean, and I, I'd like to eventually, but I, I think you need some distance to really reflect on it and then take a, a different take. But yeah, the way that Seattle is generally understood is, I mean, we're a city of 800,000 people. We have the two wealthiest men on the planet live there. which is a weird phenomenon in itself. I don't know if that's ever happened in history that like a fifth tier city size wise has had the two wealthiest people. Um, And, you know, and that, that affects everything on down, but most, most storytelling that takes place in Seattle and recent that I, you know, there's 50 shades of gray where they live on the, in a penthouse on top of some glassy building downtown there's uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, about wealthy Californian transplants uh, where the husband works in the tech industry and they live in a mansion on the top of Queen Anne. And uh, so I was looking to write about Seattle from the other side of the tracks. And I mean, my main take on on the city at this point and on 
you know, same story in San Francisco and Brooklyn and big parts of L.A. is that we've become, Seattle has never been more cosmopolitan, and it's it's very interesting in many ways, but we've also lost a ton of class diversity. I have a weird situation in that um, my wife and I bought the house I grew up in off of my folks, so I actually live in the same neighborhood, same street that I've lived in since on and off since 1977. Um, I was born in a different house a couple, couple years uh, prior, but you know, I've seen a lot of change in that period of time. And the, the family across the street were like former Navy. There was a neighbor who was a drywaller, like no drywaller is buying a house in Seattle ever again. People that worked on boats up in Alaska and in fishing. And now it's like, now we have people from all over the world, which is cool and, and, and brings a lot of vibrant culture. And, you know, I'm not saying that Seattle's gone to shit. It's, Im- it's improved in a lot of ways, but it's like everybody works at Amazon. Or if they don't work at Amazon, they work at Facebook or maybe Microsoft. And then the outliers are like a doctor and a lawyer. And, um, yeah, it's uh, everything. Our past is being it, – it, it's a young city, too, and their past is being rapidly washed away. And I wanted to just write an account of like, this is, you know, Seattle wasn't always, uh, you know, we have a big, one of the highest rates of people with graduate degrees. Um, There's a ton of wealth in the city, ton of book reading, which I'm particularly happy about. Um, But Seattle wasn't always that way. And it had, you know, it was a fishing, it was a port and it was a lot of people worked in, you know, maritime related stuff and logging stuff and there was a whole other side and it was kind of a tough town and had a big blue collar element. And, uh, the, the, the culture that became popular in the early nineties through, you know, what was deemed as grunge and whatnot, that wasn't, you know, from a well-heeled population. That was, uh, that was sort of the depressive, like this place sucks. We're up here in the Northwest with mud and we're depressed and the, you know, there's that Seattle too. And I wanted to, on one level, make a like a little bit of a historical record of it of the of the world that that I grew up in, and uh, yeah. But again, I I think fundamentally, it's still a that's you know that's the setting, that's the color, but it's a story about class and ambition. You segued nicely to my next question. You started with a quote: "Mine the miners, not the mines." What does that mean to you? Um. You know, I, what does it mean to me? I, it's, first off, the quote is by Doc Maynard, who is one of the founders of Seattle. And he was, of the two, the, the Denny party was the other founding group. And Doc Maynard was, the Denny group, where they were all teetotalers, very religious, very organized people. And that's one side of the Seattle personality. Doc Maynard was likely bipolar. He was an alcoholic. He made all these really rash, crazy decisions. And that's kind of the wild and woolly side of Seattle, and we still have that that split personality a little bit. Um, but that quote is about hustle and about getting ahead and about, that was his idea of like how we're going to take advantage of people and grow this city. Um, and that comes back to the ambition point. It's like where in the quest for upward social mobility where are you justified to cut corners? What decisions, um, you, you know, Lane, our protagonist, as he becomes, let me put it this way, he starts off being a very self-centered person. Um, I don't uh, set him up as maybe the most likable person right off the bat, but he's done everything in his own best interest. If you were to sit down with him and ask him, like, why are you like this? He'd say, well, I got to look out for myself because if I'm not looking out for myself, nobody's going to look out for me. 
and I'm a smart guy. I want to live a better life, and I got to get ahead somehow. And Inez, who's the birth mom on the other side, she's always fallen on the sword for everybody around her and has been stuck in this morass of the neighborhood. And, um, you know, he, Lane, through the process of this story, he is moving toward doing something in somebody else's best interest, and she is moving towards doing something in her own best interest. They're sort of their, their crossing narrative arcs. But, you know, I think that in the story we look frequently at, like, you know, what are the decisions that individuals we make and are confronted with all the time living in the, living in the kind of society that we live in, the, the sort of hyper-individualistic, capitalistic society where we're told you got you to gotta get ahead, you got to move far away from home, you got to collect all sorts of material uh, goods. What are the decisions that we make as an individual or, or, or that, we, that we're confronted with all the time versus like how do those decisions impact the people around us and the society around us, um, the environment, et cetera. And, you know, if you're on the flip side, if you're always making um, decisions in everybody else's best interest, how are you going to have upward social mobility yourself? Describe Lake City the place. Lake City the place is a... It, used to be just north of the city line. So the city ended on a street called 85th. And during Prohibition, uh, the police didn't, didn't patrol north of 85th. So it developed as essentially as a vice corridor. It was like the little Las Vegas for Seattle where... Uh, and, and and this was all happening at the same time that Model Ts were coming on the market and uh, people so would drive north and drink and listen to music and gamble and God knows what else they were up to. But it, it, it was this corridor of like roadhouses, taverns, and automotive dealerships. Not, not the most attractive part of town. Um, it was when I was a kid, it was known as Lake Shitty. And uh, it wasn't a place that people were necessarily proud to be from. I mean, it's a very sort of Americana-type place in that it's like a road with, like, downtrodden businesses on both sides. It's not, it's not super attractive. But then it also, all around the sides of that, had, like, a real sort of blue-collar residential area where people who didn't have advanced degrees um, or deep pockets could own a home and, you know, have some level of stability. It was like a functional blue-collar neighborhood. Um, I think it's an interesting—I mean, I had originally thought—I had the concept of the book of the, you know, of the two families and the adoption, um, and I put Lane in the middle of it because I— if it was just the two families competing over a child directly, that's a drama. There's, there's, it's really, the stakes are too high for, for whomever would be the protagonist there for, I wouldn't feel comfortable finding comedy in that story. So Lane's like this interloper between the two and he's this hapless guy who's trying to figure it out. But that allowed me to make it into more of a darkly comedic story rather than like, hey, do you want to read a book about a a custody dispute, which is like not necessarily the most uplifting material. But originally, I was going to set in Yakima in eastern Washington, which is um, an, an interesting uh, place in terms of class. Uh, that's like, uh, there are a lot of big orchards, like probably— Wine country, right? 
It's well, increasingly wine country, but traditionally it's been more uh, apple orchards. So a lot of the apples that go all over the world, when you see that grown in Washington sticker, they come from the Yakima area. And there were a lot of like wealthy landowners and then a lot of, uh, you know, Latino immigrant na- uh, labor for generations now, actually. And uh, so I was going to set it there. And um, I was like, man, I was wrestling with the story. And I was like, I don't really know that much about Yakima. And I was walking my dogs on Lake City Way, like right under my nose. And I was looking around and I was like, this neighborhood I live in is so fucking weird. There was like all these strange businesses with tinted out windows and people like these young guys stuffing boxes into trunks of cars. And there's like no signage out front. I was like, what sort of weird drug manufacturing is going on here? And I was just thinking about the neighborhood increasingly too, that it, um, because it wasn't always the most appealing neighborhood of Seattle, it's been somewhat left behind in the this relentless rush towards modernizing and making everything glassy and reflective and fresh and new. Um, it's starting, and it was, you know, when I set the book in 2001, it was, it was starting then to change. But it has some of the, you know, vestiges of of old blue-collar Seattle that still still exists. So it just I had this sort of epiphany literally while walking my dogs that I was like, man, I need to I need to set it here. And and that that, that class divide could be understood in that part of the city too. The, you're you're segueing very nicely to my next question. We're, we're, so thanks. we're having a mind meld here. Yeah. A, so what goes into the thought process of naming a book? by the place, and does doing that create any constraints or the opposite freedoms? That's a very good question. Nobody's asked me that yet, but that's something that I definitely wrestled with. Um, And I went through a bunch of different titles and tried to find, you know, and also, you know, I have my own insecurities as as a writer because I came up as a travel writer and, like, my depth is about writing about place. And I've spent the last decades, like, learning. Uh, I'm very interested in place, but I'm interested in people first and foremost in a place. And I wanted to, I didn't want to be ghettoized into travel writing for life because it's, it's a, like a sub area of writing that, that I, I found to be a little bit of a straitjacket. And, um, I, so as I, as I wrote this book, um, I, I played with other titles and just kept coming back to Lake City. And then when it finally, I got passes from 17 agents before I finally made this happen. Like I was like, I'm going to make this happen one way or another. I got, generally I got positive feedback. Like we like this book, but we just don't know if, you know, debut fiction is hard and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know about commercial potential. And, they, and when I finally found somebody who got it, he said, I think we, the uh, editor Harry Kirchner at Counterpoint, was like, I think we need to call this Lake City and just get right to the point with it. And I, I you know, still had some thoughts about, like, is this going to make it too hyper-local? Um, but I think it's a nice, clean title, and um, I don't know. Anderson Pock has a has an album out called Oxnard right now, and uh, NWA did well with Compton and neighborhoods that weren't, you know, particularly, particularly well-known. Um, so, so we'll see. Procedurally, you said something that struck a chord with me. You had the idea and you got rejected 17 times. Yeah. Does the process start with with you submitting it to an agent who then is interested in it and then would take it to counterpoint? Yeah, that's that's generally how it works. Um, agent functions more or less like a, you know, as an agent. They're, they're a, 
a middleman or woman, as uh, many, many um, agents are female nowadays. Um, but it's essentially based on, yeah, they, they have lunch with people. They know editors. They know what different editors' tastes are. And the editors are trying to focus on editing and not going out and knowing a bunch of writers. And the the agents also play a role in, like, helping people polish stuff to before they send to an, an um, editor so as to not waste too much of that person's time. I had, on my first book in 2008, I worked with an agent. He was a great agent. Um, but he pretty much only does nonfiction, and um, so he doesn't really represent. He rarely represents fiction, and when he does, it's, it's uh, mainly more commercial stuff. So I was coming with like dark comedy, you know, literary fiction, and uh, I was kind of out on my own to find find new um, things. So I'm still unagented, unagented right now. Um, I, I connected straight with a with an editor, like I said, who who got it and um, and took it from there. And, and in a weird way, a, um, a novelist, uh, John Evison, who has been a great uh, help and supporter to me in my career, he's the one who made the connection. He, I actually probably owe him an agent fee um, because it still worked in that there was a middleman connection. But rather than going from a business person who just does that all the time, it came from a trusted source. And uh, John Evison is is not only a great writer, but somebody who genuinely cares about giving back to other writers who are who are trying to to get ahead and if he you know connects with your work um you know he he's opened doors not just for me but for a number of other people and yeah he should probably be getting some some percentages off of all this at this point yeah i noticed you thanked your lawyer in your acknowledgments which is pretty rare uh, yeah. I was wondering if, if she was maybe involved in that process or if that... Um, so if you don't have... That's a, that's a good question, um, or, or, or you, you, caught a, you caught a good detail there, uh, is that because I didn't have an agent, usually the agent handles a lot of the contracting process for you too. Because I didn't have an agent, my friend and lawyer, who's an entertainment lawyer here in L.A., she handled all of that for me. Oh, in L.A.? Yeah. I'm what, in the process of looking for a lawyer for my company, so we can talk about it offline, but... Yeah, um, yeah. Caitlin D'Amata, uh, she's fantastic and a very nice and trustworthy person, which is always uh, important when working with an attorney. So, um, highly recommended. Okay, so who's Lane, and how does he go from holding a key to Gramercy Park to concerning himself with deli meats at Fred Meyer. <laughs> so Lane is a social climber. He's a striver. He is a graduate student who, at the opening of the book, has just been dumped by his wealthy wife in New York, who is helping him, essentially helping him realize his dreams to go to graduate school. She was helping him bankroll that. They were living in an apartment that belonged to her, he would like to think that he's helping her too, and you know, as an emotional support, and you know, um, she's someone who's grown up with everything she ever wanted, and and she respects his sort of gumption, I guess you could say, or his his hustle. Um, but when that all falls apart and he flames out of that relationship, he winds up back where he started and who he really is. So he takes not only an emotional kickdown, but also a class backsliding, you know, because all he, he hadn't amassed money. He had amassed status, essentially. And this was somewhat based off of, of an experience in my own life where I had a horrible breakup. I wasn't married, but I had a horrible breakup um, and uh, washed back up. 
uh, on on at my parents' house, and you know nobody really cares what kind of grade you got in your graduate seminar last semester if you still only have thirty six dollars in your bank account and no real world work experience. Like the whole world of ideas you were inhabiting goes out the window pretty quickly, and uh, it's a harsh reality. And so he's thrown. Uh, back into the bottom of the hole that he feels that he's spent the last decade climbing out of. And in the in the opening pages of the book, he's re- he thinks, okay, this is all going to blow over. I'm going to go back after, you know, the whole book takes place over essentially winter vacation as students tend to judge the world in those sort of increments. Uh, that he's going to go back after after winter vacation and, and this is he's going to figure it all out with, with his ex and they're going to get back together and he's going to move on with his life. Um, but it became, becomes apparently clear that that's not going to happen and he needs to take drastic measures. And he's like, that's what he's telling himself. That's like his mantra. It's like drastic measures. Like I have to, he's somebody who's always been able to make things make things happen by, by, you know, sheer force of will. And he's like, I'm going to, I don't care what it is. I'm going to, I got to get back. I got to get back on my feet here. I'm not going to let this all slip through my fingers. And, um, yeah, that's when the, the plot starts to move forward and he's exposed to an opportunity, we'll say, um, which may not be the most ethical thing, but, uh, it doesn't seem like the least ethical thing either. It seems like this might not, Actually, maybe this is a good thing. You're able; he's able to twist his own arm a little bit and say, "And this would make all my problems go away all in one fell swoop." And uh, that's that's where we are. Then, by the you know, as as the as the story moves forward, you mentioned anecdotes. By the way, I really enjoyed your anecdote about the Economist's job postings. I was mesmerized by those when I first started reading it. Yes. around 18 or 19. Yeah, me too. And I'm equally mesmerized by them now, mm-hmm. still, as yes. a functioning adult with yes. two kids. Um, was that a personal anecdote for you too? Is that how it found its way into the book? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as when I was in grad school, I used to look at those um, those ads for, you know, with all the fancy acronyms and the ILO and the you know, I don't even know. There, there, there are too many of them to. They put it but, in the front of the magazine too, which is or the newspaper. They don't call it a magazine. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I do. People get really high flying jobs through like magazine posts. I feel like true all those, story. I applied to a few back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe it. I, <laughs> I, I, the older I get and the more things I've seen on the work front, I feel like ninety nine percent of well paid jobs happen through like reputation or connection, but. Um, Hey, um, it's anything, anything's possible. Right. So, and, and yeah, it's economist was definitely like a, a, a guiding light of like, this is what the, this is what the world could be. And, um, this and, is a pathway to holding the key to Gramercy park. Yeah. And I saw that in, in him and, and if it, can I, can I elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, one thing I realized just in in Lane's desires and looking, just been talking about this in the last few days, one of the things I've been realizing in my own psychology is that I didn't grow up in a family with much money. I, I'm, I am not Lane. Lane is maybe my, all of my worst insecurities about myself taken to an extreme. I But I grew up in a family where we didn't have like liquid assets per se. We didn't have cash on hand. So we were maybe uh, lower middle class that way. But, you know, my father, my mother was a school teacher. My father was a freelance photographer. And we had, we were holding on to our, like, we have sophistication. We have education, though. We have this, like, 
intellectual status. And so that was like currency in my family because we didn't have so much of the other currency. And and we put a lot of lot of value on that. And and Lane, he's not chasing money. Um and he reflects on that at a few points in the story that he's actually like, had I been chasing money, had I done, you know, all this schooling that I've that I've done now, had I done it in had, had I become an accountant or something, um, I would have had some real world position to to seg into now, but he's been pursuing this world of ideas, and it just doesn't translate. And you know, I felt that coming out of I went to a liberal arts college undergrad and doing um, I was in you know interdisciplinary studies as a graduate student. It's just like you get out the other side, and you have some big ideas that may pan out well in the long run. If you you know twenty years later, if you want to become a novelist or something, like it helps you think about things in expansive ways. But in terms of, you know, that translating out the other side into a real world profession, it's a it's a pretty scary transition point. So. What's your process for finishing the book? So how do you think about it? How do you, how do you think about when to end and where to end creatively and in terms of commerce? Good question. So first part, um, creatively, how to end? I um, have done enough projects over so my first book came out eight years ago or ten years ago and I've done enough failed projects before and after that to learn my lesson to not, like it's it's fun to get off and and writing and developing the voices and and you you know writing parts that you find are funny and 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 really getting into that sort of flow state of of writing but you can paint yourself into a corner and I'm not the kind of writer who's gonna at this point, I've had too many painful experiences like that. I'm not going to just get off and writing on something and then cut 200 pages and then figure out the the conclusion, the process. Which is, I had this on three by five cards, all on a on a cork board on my wall. Like I didn't know exactly how it was going to end, but I had like all the plot points that I then fleshed out as I went through. So I wasn't going down a dark hallway. I I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it ahead of time, but commercially. You know, commercially, I think it was, uh, I did try to get it up and out earlier, and I jumped the gun probably, and, and you know, I said about the 17 passes, some of my, I, I probably shot myself in the foot on a couple of my best leads on agents that by sharing stuff too early that wasn't ready to share, but I was like, oh, I just want to get this up and out in the world when I had 70 pages of the book, and then... How do you pe- know? How do you know when it's ready to share? Yeah, um... It's very hard. It, it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person, I'm an optimist and I'm always like, oh yeah, this is, this is going to be great. And I'm excited. And like, you, I mean, you don't, you don't know when, when, you know, if you have good, um, like readers around you, I don't really, I didn't really share with a lot of people early on. I kind of keep to myself and in, in writing, I don't like to talk about it too much. I don't like too much noise in my head. But you know, I read it. I read it. I read it a lot to myself, and try to imagine the the characters and the voices in my head. And when I, I it's just a, a, an intuition that this is in a good enough place. I think I I shared it too. When I say I shared it too early, I just, I don't know that the actual like tone of the book or the or the writing was that different at that point. It was just like I maybe didn't have enough to. I didn't have enough. It wasn't baked enough uh, for them to really understand the the big picture. I I, I benefited though from. Spending, I'm, I think that in in an ideal world, everybody should, when they finish a book, say, I feel like I'm finished with this. I'm going to take a month and not look at it at all. I'm going to spend time outside of the house and exercising and reading some other books that I like. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to spend another year working on it, just polishing it. 
Um, and that's essentially a pain. It's a painful thing because you're like, okay, I want to move on or I want to get this out in the world. Or, But um, it can always benefit from you revisiting things with a fresh take. And I benefited from... I, I would put it out to an agent and then wait sometimes a couple of months to hear back, you know, on the more extreme sides, you know, sometimes just a, a week or two. They would generally, they would give me notes and say, this didn't work or this part could be improved. And and I appreciate those people's opinions because they didn't owe me anything. They didn't, they weren't my friends or not somebody who's trying to, you know, it's not like my wife taking a read at it and being, you know, being like, I don't want to hurt his feelings. These people are, are know they're never going to speak to me again. So that doesn't mean that I took every bit of feedback from them. I took what I, you know, you, there's a whole nother thing to talk about in terms of like, you know, when do you know to take feedback and not, and that's always just you know, something that, that, that you wrestle with because, because again, you don't want to have too many voices in your head and everybody has a different opinion. You have to, their opinion has to line up with something you feel to be true in, in yourself. Um, but I benefited from, you know, adding essentially two years onto the back end of this of just like taking notes and, you know, from the time that I thought it was ready to get out to when it actually did get out into the world, I just worked pretty relentlessly to improve it. Um, and you know, it is, it is good to spend a little time away from a project too and come back with fresh eyes, Tim. Yeah. Well said. What would you like readers to take away from the book? Um, this book is fundamentally, as I said, about ambition and the downside of ambition. And I would like people to, from, you know, from Lane's character, I'm not, it's above my pay grade, I would say, to like answer uh, what's what are what's the right decision about ambition and and where where should you make decisions in your best interest versus um, versus in the best interest of other people. But I think that these are decisions that we deal with all the time, and I would like people to 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 just continue to think about that and think about uh, the world that we live in, where we're increasingly, I mean, if you look from our president on down now, we're being told that making decisions in your best in your best personal interest is the ultimate good. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, who you step on. It doesn't matter what happens to the environment that that's, you know, that self-enrichment is the, is the best thing that you should, that you could achieve in life. And, um, I, I, I think that, that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, maybe becoming a Mother Teresa. But most most of us live in some gradation of gray area in between that. I, I, I think if we, if people can can reflect a bit on the costs and demons of ambition, um, I would like that. And then on the on the local level, again, I, I you know, as soon as I locked in on setting this in Seattle at the time that I did, I was like, I want to write the great Seattle novel. Like, I don't, that doesn't really exist. There are some great nonfiction books about Seattle. Where'd You Go Bernadette was a, was a funny book, um, but it's not, it's written, Maria Semple is a Californian transplant. That I wanted like a real, I don't know, like I, I was respect like, uh, you know, Tales of the City, Armistead Maupin about San Francisco or whatever, just something that, that people can have as a touchstone about uh, the time and time and place in a city and a city's history. And and um, if even a few people feel that way about this book, even if it's just some some Seattle old timer uh, townies, that would uh, that would mean the world to me. 
the Seattle book that I recommend uh, that I remember most. I can't I can't remember the name of it, but it's about the about a guy and his dog. I think the author's name is Garth. Mm-hmm. Do you know who I'm talking Garth about? Garth Stein. It's yeah. the art of racing in the rain. The art yeah. of racing in the yeah, rain. Yeah, it's a yeah. good book. Um, when did you know this was a book? Um, well, I, I set out to write a, well, I set out to write a long form project. I was, I had been doing a lot of screenwriting. I, you know, I would have been better off if somebody had told me this stuff you're doing sucks. You should go back to where you, where you came from, or you should just stick with books. But I got enough positive feedback that, you know, you come down here to LA and people are telling you that this is going to happen and had, you know, meetings and stuff, which means nothing. Um, but, and I ended up with a bunch of PDFs on my desktop after, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears and stories that I really loved. And I had started to write this originally as a screenplay and I had another, I had a pilot that I wrote that took place in a neighborhood called Ballard in Seattle. And it was about like the former like godfather of grunge who had all the, his like he never made it big. All the guys around him that he influenced made it big. And now he's working as like a janitor in this totally transformed neighborhood that he's like the old curmudgeon on the block who lives in his mom's house. And anyways, I, and I really loved that story and I loved the character, but again, it never, it just ended up as this shelved screenplay because it never happened in the end, even though for a moment it looked like it might. And, uh, so as I was working on this, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back and I'm going to write this as a book and I am going to get it out in the world. I don't care if I publish it as a serial on a blog. I don't care if, well, I do care, but I will get it out as a Kindle book for 99 cents. Whatever it takes in the end, I will create this book, which is going to be essentially my my pure comedic creative vision of the the world around me that I grew up in and I'm going to get it out in the world so that when I'm an old man I can look back and say I did this at least once my first book I'm I'm proud of but it also became sort of transmogrified through the commercial process and came out the other end of that not not being necessarily what I had set out to do um and uh, with this one I was like I'm just I'm going to do it and uh you know I'm I'm fortunate that I do, um, I have a, a, a commercial, I'll call it, uh, writing side of my career, and I do animation and video stuff, and um, I was able to write this book without having to worry about paying my mortgage with it. I was able to just do it for 100% for its own sake and for the, yeah, for the sake of creating it and setting out to do what I wanted to do. At the beginning, you thanked your parents for encouraging you to be whatever you wanted to be. With respect to this book, it sounds like you feel like you accomplished that. This is exactly what you wanted it to be. That's, uh, I hadn't thought about it that way until just now, but um, yes. You know, it was it, it was a hard process. I think, I know you were a lawyer, and now you're doing podcasting, and it's it's a big... Sometimes it's a long process to figure out what really is the most fulfilling path for us. And I'm saying that as somebody who took the LSAT and worked in a Wall Street law firm for a minute and really thought I was going to go to law school. And but yeah, I, I I feel I feel very fulfilled by this. Yes, I'm 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 proud of it. And um, you know, sometimes we have to bleed for. It was again, it was like seven years of writing 
after my wife and kids went to bed, going downstairs and, like, punching out two hours in front of the computer, an hour here if I finished my commercial work a little later in the day. I'd work from four to five before coming home for dinner or, you know, just step by step. And, uh, yeah, I bled for it, and uh, it's out there in the world now, and uh, people can love it or hate it. Somebody could write a terrible review, like— it might bother me a little bit, but fuck it. Like this is, I, I did it on my own terms and, uh, and it's out there now and, and I, I own it a hundred percent. Respect. Um, one more question before I do a quick lightning round. You mentioned you were a screenwriter. Um, I'm always, I think you kind of got a sense of this when we talked off mic, I'm infinitely curious about creatives and like, do you think adaptation when you, while you're writing like a, a literary fiction, like, is that, can you turn that part of your brain off? Yeah, well, I think that screenwriting helped me a ton with this book because, you know, I don't think that one is, I'm going to come back, this comes back around to your question, but, um, you know, a, a novel is extremely hard to write, but you're also allowed the luxury of a little bit of digression, and, and screenwriting is more of a ruthless process where you really have to, you know, get rid of words that, that uh, and, and, and storylines that don't, add up to the to the end goal and so it helped me a ton with structuring and this book was written on three-act structure like essentially a movie structure and yeah i'd be lying if i said i wouldn't be psyched you know under the right circumstances if if it were to get adapted that would be that would be awesome and 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 the other work that i do too whether uh, like i said i've worked on some podcasts the animation i've been doing more and more stuff with 360 video all, all sorts of stuff. It is, it's all narrative driven and, and you can apply that, uh, narrative. They're, they're all narrative cousins essentially. And I, sure. I, I find it endlessly. I think we live in a really interesting time with the diversification of media out there that, that still like, if you watch even a, a, a you know, 60 second video, 30 second video, that's just all visually appealing, but has no narrative drive to it. You can get bored pretty quickly, you know? And, uh, so there, there's, there's room for storytelling and, um, and, and, and I come to, I come to writing through kind of an, a, a traditional, I don't even know, it was a typical path in that, like, I wasn't an English student. I, I came up studying languages, mainly I studied Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and I have periods in my life where I wasn't really a big reader either. I, I was really a storyteller and I'm always just like run at the mouth and love to tell stories about like something I did and I thought it was going to work out one way and it went poorly, but like trying to find the humor in that and, you know, and then have always been interested in shows and movies and comic books. And like, I grew up on Mad Magazine and um, I like nonfiction and fiction. And, and and so I'm kind of an omnivore on that front. And it's it's just a fascinating time with digital media to be able to apply that to so many uh, to so many other areas. It's it's pretty exciting. Totally. No, there's so many universes that can extend from books now. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, what are you reading right now? I'm reading The Intuitionist by Colson Whitehead, which was his first book. Um, and I'm reading that for my for my book club. I have a book club with uh, three friends, um, one who's in San Francisco, one who's in Panama, and one who's in Dallas. And we, like, meet up on Google Hangouts and have a drink and, uh, yeah, talk about books. That's awesome. Yeah, it was because I, 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 well, I met this guy, Dawson, who lives in San Francisco. We were, I was at, a, like, a music festival, and we were waiting in line, the Don Julio line to get a tequila and we were talking about 
randomly talking about books and he was telling me about how he likes to read fiction and he's like, my wife's in a book club, but I don't know any, you know, I don't know about any book clubs and I don't, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, man, that'd be cool to expose, you know, to expose myself to books that I wouldn't normally read versus like, you know, and we just had this sort of moment where we're like, we should, we should create a book club. And he's like, yeah. And then after the thing, we, we made it happen. And we, we both, each of us brought in one more friend and it's pretty easy. Like we're pretty lax on, on timelines. Sometimes it's like a month and a half for a book. Sometimes they run a little bit over until everybody's done, but it's, it's a cool experience. And I, I also really like it. None of the other three guys are either writers or aspiring writers. So it's, um, interesting to me. They're very smart people, um, you know, but in total different areas of life. So there's like a, lack of pretentiousness and preciousness in the whole thing too and which is just, important yeah, yeah and just to hear from from smart people what they think about books and and stories and uh, I enjoy it how do you decide what to read what are your what are some of the filters that you have in place you know i i i buy and get a lot of books that i end up not making it so far into them um i'm i'm trying to push my boundaries and not read the same thing over and over again um but you know, or not just read new stuff that's hyped, but uh, really I have to get going on something. And if I don't engage with the voice in the, you know, in the first part of it, it's pretty hard to continue. I've I, How many pages? Is there, is there, that's like a, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I probably chicken out too soon and I feel like in five pages or so, I'm just like, I don't think I'm going to be able to engage with it. I mean, it's an investment to read a book. It's a, it's a lot of time and, um, you have to be into it. I, you know, I was, I was garbage as a student in reading things that were assigned to me. If I was like, this isn't interesting to assign to me. It was like, I was the ultimate skimmer essentially. Yeah. I just like, if it shouldn't feel like a chore. So, I mean, there's so many millions of books out there. Like, yeah, there are certain things I'm like, I feel like I should read this or should read it to like understand what somebody was doing here, but that's more of a clinical thing. Like I like to enjoy what I'm reading and feel inspired and, and voice voice plays a big part of that. But I'm trying to, you know, to read different types of fiction from different types of writers from different times and just expand my horizons. And I'll never, I'll never, I'm 43. I'll never read even probably 5% of the books that I would like to read in this life. So I'm just going for it as I can. And while also having two dogs and a seven-year-old and a four-year-old kid and commercial work and everything else going on. But, um, yeah. Who inspired you to become a writer? What writer, I should say, inspired you to write? Um, the, the book that I asked the dust by John Fonte and are you familiar with that book? Um, it's a, it's about, it's a Arturo Bandini. Who's like a young writer who moves to Los Angeles. It's a very LA story actually. Um, he, I, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a short book, but just the story of a young man moving to the big city and trying to make it as a writer and sort of that struggle to figure out what you want to do too, that we, that we spoke about before. I just, in his voice, I felt like such a kinship there. It like unlocked something in my head because, because I, I was lost for a while trying to figure out what's, you know, I'm the kind of person, like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 110%. And, like, I just spent a lot of time not paralyzed, but, like, afraid of making the wrong step and, like, kind of putting my toe in this direction and then no, and then, this, you know. 
I don't know if I've ever said this, but but and I, it just randomly crossed my mind that when I was young and I watched, I never knew anybody who was a writer or I didn't really, I don't think I even understood anything about careers that much when I was little. I didn't know, like, I didn't know shit. Like, Seattle was this chill place and it was like, yeah, careers and I, I didn't get it. But I remember at the end of the movie Stand By Me, at the very end, it's like flashes to the narrator working at his desk and writing. And it wasn't seeing them writing at the desk like, oh, I want that lifestyle or something. There was his way of talking and like evaluating the situation, um, like stepping back and and taking in the world around him that I was like, oh, I'm like that. I get that. And 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 that was the first time that I ever thought when I was young, I was like, Ooh, a writer, that's really something I've never thought about. And that's cool. I connect with that. But it was less that like I was looking at a book and like I want to create one of these. It was more the like way of viewing the world and and processing how you're, you know, I'm I'm always like collecting weird details and stuff. Um, it's just the way that my mind works and like taking that mashing it up into something and then putting it back out um that I, I related to that i remember that scene i love that you said that that's a great movie yeah the, uh, i think his kids are playing outside yeah grassy area yeah or and there's like an old school and computer a, on the desktop old school computer yeah. and there's like a voiceover yeah 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 i need to see that movie again it's been a long yeah, time it's totally a rewatchable movie yeah. especially if you have little kids yeah i do um what are some of your favorite bookstores um, I am very fortunate that when I set out to do the tour for this book, um, that I was asked that question by my publisher. So, you know, I'm going to many of those stores right now, uh, third place books in Seattle. Um, I live right near a third place books and I like stop in there all the time, even if it's just for a coffee or to look at whatever, um, take my kids there. And it's just, it plays a big role in my life. That's my, that's the, that's the home team. Um, I really love Elliott Bay Books in Seattle, which is a classic bookstore. Powell's in Portland is iconic. It's, you know, a tourist destination and which is a fantastic thing. Um, I read at Book Soup here last night in LA, which is a place that I always visit when I come to Los Angeles. And it was a dream for me to be able to read there. Um, I'm going to uh, Word Brooklyn uh, next week, which is a great bookstore. City Lights also in San Francisco. I was at East Bay Bookseller on, on East Bay, which uh, admittedly that was my first time there, but it's a very, very nice bookstore. It used to be Diesel. Yes. Became East Bay. Yeah. yeah. I interviewed the owner of Diesel, John Evans, mm -hmm. who's down here now, but uh, he, we talked about the transition from Diesel to East Bay. Yes. Great, great place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a great store. Um, Where's your favorite place to write? Um, so I have two writing setups. One is my home office, which is a more of a traditional desk setup. I mean, I have a second monitor, but sometimes I'll just, you know, work on my laptop in a random place. But I have a studio outside of the house. It's about seven-minute drive away. It looks like a little dorm room. And I basically have—I I don't play video games, but it's like a gamer setup where I have a beanbag. It's like a— four foot wide beanbag and I sit there with a lap desk and then I got a 48 inch or 52 inch TV on the wall there and I use my Apple TV to like jack the Word document up on the screen and I sit there leaning back and uh, friends give me grief about it but you can sit there all day and and you know not get neck pain and it's just 
I feel like I write differently when I feel differently. And uh, that's where I, so, so if I'm, I'm kind of like more doing technical stuff, sometimes I'll be at home sitting upright and writing. And if I'm going to go in and just write long form for a while, get really spend time getting in the characters' heads and like, it's nice to also like, I love my family dearly, but the, you know, having my children float in and out of the office is not necessarily conducive to like really inhabiting the story. You know, I'll sit there and I'll go to my studio, close the door you know, sit in, sit in the beanbag, lay back and just type up on the, up on the wall there in, you know, 24 point font or whatever that I can see. And it's, it's easy on the eyes too. So helps. Yeah. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, I have a site, uh, thomasconestam.com and, uh, my last name's K-O-H-N-S-T-A-M-M. Um, you can also go to lakecitybook.com and we'll get you there. It's a pretty pretty simple site, but that can lead you to some information about my books. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, not so much on Twitter, sort of, kind of. But The book is Lake City, wonderful debut. Thomas, thank you. Thank you so much. That was a great interview. I really appreciate all the insight. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>